Yeah. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It should come up on the screen behind me as well. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff will burn with unquenched fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Hey everyone, it is just so great to see you guys here today. My name is Jacob, if I haven't met you before. And, um, and a big welcome to 4pm and welcome back to everyone. I realize it's been actually five weeks since we've been here at 4 o'clock on a Sunday because we had the weekend away and three weeks at the high school. Um, so it's just nice to be back together again like this. And if you are here for the first time, I just want to echo Anna's welcome. That it is just great to have you with us. If you're here with questions um, or even some skepticism about this whole Christian thing, maybe just looking into it, um, you are in the right place. We, we love that you're here. And if there's any way we can help you and, and talk to you about any of the questions you've got, we'd love to a bit later on. I also just want to add to what Anna was saying about, um, yes, please do fill in the surveys uh, that you should have in your, in your inbox if you're a member here. But also I just want to encourage you guys to be praying in particular over the next week for the leadership of the church as we think through um, making a decision about whether or not we would actually move on a more permanent basis down to the high school. We've been speaking to the um, to small group leaders already. We'll be having some more conversations this week, reading over those surveys. But we're really just trying to actually seek God's um, voice and his, and his word on this. So we're, we're going to be, um, I sort of encourage you whether it's just taking like a minute each morning just to just be praying for this decision over the next week or, or blocking out even a day maybe to, to just fast and pray for it. Um, so that as a church we can make a wise decision to make plans that will actually set us up uh, for growth and for health over the next stage of our life as a church. We're going to be getting into to Matthew chapter 3 now which is um, really all about getting ready to meet with God. I don't know if you see yourself as a particularly uh, getting ready type person. For me, in the mornings, uh, my default is getting ready is just kind of getting whatever clean clothes are on the top of the washing pile and hoping that what I'm doing that day in the weather kind of matches that. 
Um, I don't put a whole lot of effort in most mornings, which you can maybe tell just by looking at me. But, uh, but there are some events in life where I do feel like there's a bit of extra pressure to be ready and to think about what, what I'm doing going into it. Uh, one of those that I just remember quite clearly where I was just very conscious and aware of my getting ready was when I went on my first date with my now wife, Sarah, just down the road in Darling Street. On the lead up to that, I found myself asking questions I didn't normally ask. I, was, I remember thinking that week, have I had a haircut? Normally that only kind of comes up when someone says to me, hey, you're due for a haircut. That's kind of my way of knowing if someone comments on it. I was asking myself, have I got sufficiently new clothes for this? Like, it's a bit of a special occasion. And I was even thinking about uh, the kind of, were they ready to make conversation? I'm a very kind of prepare type person. So I, was, um, so I went in with a, with a list of questions ready to go, just so the conversation didn't go off the rail. But I didn't actually need any of them, because it turns out Sarah's the same. She came in with a bunch of questions. I remember one question she asked very early on, which uh, was very romantic, where she said, do you want to go and live on the moon? And I was like, oh, this is love. She, kn- she knows the kind of stuff I like to talk about. So she was ready. Um, but there are some things in life where you do just feel the kind of pressure to be ready, whether it's like going for a job interview or a, or a first day at a new job, whether it's your wedding day. There are just some things you, need, you feel like you need to be ready. I wonder how much preparation and thought and readiness would be justified by the concept of potentially meeting with God. I wonder if you hear the question, are you ready to meet God? How do you feel? Maybe that's kind of an intense question for you. Or maybe that question just feels like it's completely irrelevant because it's got really nothing to do with day-to-day life. It's not a question we think of most of the time, I reckon. It's not for most of us on our minds every day. But I think the reason that you know it is a question of significance is that it is a question that people invariably do turn to as they approach the end of their life. It's up there with questions like, um, have I lived a well-lived life? Do I have any regrets? Am I ready to meet with God? And I'm not just trying to kind of start off in some kind of scary and, and morbid way, because for a lot of people, and maybe you've even known people in your life who have neared the end of their life, for whom the concept of meeting with God has actually been a comfort. There's been a confidence going into that. Um, it's a significant question. More often we think about, are we ready to... To embark on a career, or are we ready to start a family, or are we getting ready for retirement? But it is a significant question to wonder are we ready to meet God? And that's the kind of question that kind of underpins this chapter that Anna just read to us as we, as we meet Jesus for the first time. We've been in the book of Matthew for a couple of weeks now. The first two weeks we've spent in it have looked at Jesus's, like before he was born, his birth, and the first years of his life as an infant really mostly following the story of his parents and getting a bit of an introduction to what his life will be about. But today is the first account in the book of Matthew that we see Jesus as an adult. And really we see him being introduced by someone who's come before him to get people ready. So we're going to be unpacking that today. Um, If you're new to church, basically what we do is we're just going to be walking kind of through what's just been read to us kind of line by line, just kind of seeing what it is that God might be wanting us to understand or learn or say to us. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray. So I just encourage you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are with us this afternoon. That you've spoken to us in your word, that we have this kind of window to see, uh, to see what Jesus did and what he said uh, thousands of years ago. And we just pray as we think on these things this afternoon, whether we're coming in with questions or, or skepticism or feeling uncertain about something or just thinking about something else altogether. We just pray that in this time, 
we'd be able to hear from you by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So up on the screen, um, the first few verses will, will come up there, and we're going to be just working our way through it. In verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So we start this kind of opening as we, we meet this character, John the Baptist, and it, and it starts by saying that he was preaching in the wilderness. So outside the city of Jerusalem, which is where it is now in, in modern-day Israel, was, was a wilderness region. Um, most translations of the Bible, instead of wildernesses, have desert, because that's kind of more what's going on. I've even got a picture up if we go to the next slide. So I like to have a bit of a mental picture of where we're at. This is a picture of the wilderness reg- region. Not a whole lot of trees. It's more of just a rocky, barren desert. And if you think about it, that's a weird place for, to find someone preaching. Um, and the reason it's weird is because there's not typically people there. So you can imagine walking through, if you go to the city on an afternoon, you might find someone up on a milk crate kind of preaching or, or you know, yelling out to the crowds of people there. But you wouldn't often find someone out if you're doing a, you know, a bushwalk in the Blue Mountains because people tend to go where the people are if they've got a message to say. But that's not where John is. He's out in the wilderness. And so it's worth pausing to think on why that is. Firstly, John's out there. He's fulfilling a prophecy. There's in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, um, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it said that before this Messiah, that is the chosen king that we know to be Jesus, comes, there would be someone preparing the way. And so Matthew points out in verse 3 that John is the fulfillment of that prophecy. It says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. So you've got John out there filling this prophecy, preaching in the wilderness. But more than that, John is actually an embodiment of wilderness. See in verse 4 it says, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is, this is a man who is wild. Um, his clothes evoked out of another prophet, the prophet Elijah, who wore a similar thing. But the reason they wear this is simply because this, these are clothes that, that speak of a person who is a bit kind of an outsider, but also someone who is poor. Camel's hair wasn't kind of Gucci fashion. It's not your fresh in-season clothes. It's not, he's not wearing it as like a fashion statement because it's in. He's wearing it because it's just survival clothes. It's just clothes that are functional and keep you warm. Honey and locusts, the food that, that John ate, wasn't the food of refined people with, with money to spend on the nicer things. It's simply the protein and the sugar that he needs to survive. It would get old. It would be, be a tough diet to have. So in a minute, we're going to look at what it was that John was preaching. But I think it's just worth reflecting on the fact that this is where Jesus' ministry starts. That it's here, outside in the desert, preceded by a poor and poorly dressed man. Not in the city of Jerusalem, preceded by a a wealthy, well-dressed, well-to-do person preaching in the town square. There's something about being outside the city in the wild that, that gets to the heart of our need as people. Me and my wife Sarah recently have been watching Bear Grylls the Island. If I've, to- if I've spoken with you in the last few weeks, I've probably told you about this show. I've been talking about it a lot because no one seems to have seen it. Has anyone seen this show? A few out there. It is, I'm really loving it at the moment. Um, for those who, who aren't aware, Bear Grylls isn't really in it. He just gets, um, I think it's like 15 British people. Just, they're, they're so classically British. They're accountants and graphic designers, nurses, police, men and women. Uh, and they drop them on an island in the Pacific somewhere for five weeks. So it's very much like Survivor, but without the, like the games and the prize money and, and the help. They, they literally just 
starve, and you watch them waste away over, over five weeks. Um, and it's really, it's really just interesting to watch. Get on it. It's up on 10 play at the moment. There's a hot tip for your Sunday night. But um, one of the things that happens in, in a series every, every season is at the very end, they kind of interview the people that made it to the end about what their experience was. And most of them, if not all of them, talk about it being an experience that has, actually, has utterly transformed them as it's stripped away all of their comforts, as it's stripped away all of the things that were giving their life meaning, they've kind of learned what matters and, and they say that they've kind of got a new set of values and, and their life's not going to be the same going back. And I find in myself as I watch this, there's something in me that, that aches for this kind of experience. I think it's the same thing that makes us kind of ache for kind of these kind of um, spiritual outdoor experiences that when people go looking for the spiritual, they often go whether it's on, like some, on a pilgrimage or staying in a monastery on a mountain or on a walkabout or whatever it is, I think it's even the reason that we like camping is that sometimes getting outside the noise, getting outside of the, the comfort and the things that make us feel secure and the things that make us feel okay means that we can be awoken to the realities that we're often dull to. Often we find in our, in our lives in this city there are things that dull us to the spiritual. We've got distraction, we've got comfort, we've got security. Even more so back in John's time, these people who lived in Jerusalem, which was God's chosen city, it was a symbol of God's security, of religious security as well. But outside in the desert, there is nothing. There is nothing except your need and the God who can provide it. So, so what's going on here is, is, is God is forming a people, this new movement of people outside of the tradition, outside of the values, outside of the worldview of the culture to do something new. God forms a people in the wilderness where they're stripped of everything but him. This isn't the first time God has done this. If you, if you read the Old Testament, the story of the people of Israel, after they are rescued from Egypt, they spend 40 years wandering the desert where they have to rely on God for everything. That is how God builds a people. And so it says in verse 5 and 6, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The scene is you've got people coming out of Jerusalem, this chosen city, off into the desert just to see this man dressed in camel's hair, to be confronted with questions that matter. Am I okay? Is my soul okay? Am I on the right path? Can I know God? The need to deal with these questions that matter is what drive people out to the desert. And so let's look at what John has to say to them. His message is simple. If you look back in verse 2, it's just there in a nutshell. John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a really simple message, but even just in that, without knowing much about it, it feels like it's a confronting message, doesn't it? repentance, and even the word repent isn't something we feel that good about most of the time. It's not particularly palatable because to be told to repent is akin to being told to turn around. It's to basically say you're going wrong. You need to go around and go a completely different way. It's confronting. No one likes being told that they're wrong. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons that, that Christianity is just so often um, avoided and disliked because the message of sin in and of itself is confronting. The Christian worldview says that sin is real, that our hearts aren't right, that we have twisted desires, we have desires in us that are evil, and we often can keep those at bay in a lot of ways, but from time to time, those evil desires, whether it's to be the ruler of our own life, to be selfish, um, 
to, to use others for our own gain can actually overflow into action. And when that happens, we find ourselves each contributing to this pool of mess that we all find ourselves swimming in. But instead of owning this reality, I think we as people have gotten really good at kind of building up these kind of um, reasons why things aren't that bad. We've learned how to present to be as better than we are. Um, most people don't know, some, in a lot of ways, how bad we are. We've found ways to excuse even to ourselves our shortcomings as not being that serious. And so when someone comes along and says to us, hey, you're actually in the wrong and you need to repent, we find that abrasive and challenging because it's kind of knocking down this kind of wall we've built up for ourselves and we reject it. I think this is the natural inclination we have when someone says to us that we are wrong. One of the things that Facebook's worked out about me, um, which is probably of many things that's worked out about me because it's scary what Facebook can do, but it's worked out that I like Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. And so when I'm in the video section of Facebook, um, or I don't even know, it just comes up on my news feed, it'll be a five-minute video just of like a, a key scene when celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay goes into some restaurant or cafe and just unloads on the chef or the owner or the manager about how bad they are. Basically, the premise of the show is that for some reason they invite him to their cafe or their restaurant and he finds something obvious like moldy chicken in the fridge or the, the meat's undercooked or whatever it is and he tells them, hey, this is why you're terrible. This is why no one's coming here. This is why you're losing money. Change it. Do better. And bizarrely, seeing as they invited him on and that's all he ever does, people seem to be surprised and they get shocked and they, they push back on it and they say, look, it's not that bad. Everyone does this. Like, this is just, the, you know, the normal thing in, in the practice. And it obviously escalates, he gets angry, he swears. It's great watching. But, um, <laughs> but what happens eventually is they, they come around, they admit that, yeah, that what they've been doing is not how you're meant to run a business. They make changes and it gets better. But that initial response, I think, is what we all feel. But in order to actually move forward, the, the correct response is some humility in the face of a right judgment. I was listening to another podcast this week. It was called Cautionary Tales where the podcaster person just tells a story from something that happened sometime in history, somewhere in the world, and there's a little, a little kind of moral at the end about how that applies to your life. It's kind of interesting. But one of the ones I was listening to this week was talking about um, the, the success and failure of different investors. Um, and it, it ended up him talking about the study that was done on people that have gone through stock market crashes. And the key metric for success wasn't for investors how often they were right, but how willing they were to admit when they were wrong. The, the reality was that people, no matter how good these investors were, people would make mistakes, but some, when made, they made a mistake, and even when that mistake was made apparent, to save face, they would insist it's the right decision and follow through with it, and it would lead to ruin. Whereas others could say, you know what, I was wrong, I'm going to try something else. And they were often the most successful ones. It takes humility to accept that we're wrong. And this message of repentance that John is speaking to people can only be responded to rightly with humility. And what we see in this passage is two different ways of responding to this instruction to repent. Firstly, the bulk of the crowd actually accepts John's call. So I'll just read again, I think we just read it, but in verse 5 and 6 it says, People went out to him from Jerusalem, nor Judea, the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So you get this one response here, confession and baptism. These two things go hand in hand. Confession is just the kind of verbal aspect of repentance. To admit that you're wrong, to turn around, that comes with just saying out loud normally, I'm wrong. I need help. I'm not okay. I need forgiveness. I've not done right. 
And that's an act of humility. Like, it's a hard thing to do if you've had to, been in situations where you've had to admit out loud that you were wrong. But that's what people do when you come, when you realize that you're not ready to come face to face with the living God. The correct response is to confess that. And that goes hand in hand with what John was doing in baptism. Baptism was a thing that was done in the Jewish community. John wasn't the first person to do baptism. But what it was back in those days was an initiation ritual for pagans wanting to convert to Judaism. So it's a symbolic way that, that a, a pagan person who wanted to become a Jew would come get in the water, kind of symbolizing this kind of new beginning as, as the old is washed off and, and there is a new rebirth of life. But what's significant here is that it's people from Jerusalem, it's Jewish people who are going out to be baptized, something that typically was not seen to be something that Jewish people needed to do. In fact, as God's chosen people, it's almost shameful because they're kind of having to say, look, we're, it's as if we were pagans, it's as if we were as bad as them. So many people responded to this message, owning their sin in humility and contriteness and seeking to address it. There's another group that we see in this story that is a contrast to that. The Jewish leaders. In verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Pharisees and Sadducees, who are characters that we're going to meet again and again as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, were the religious elite. They were the ones who had put heaps of stock in their life in keeping clean. And John doesn't mince his words with them. He, he in essence, says, you guys are a pack of snakes which is super confronting language in a religion where the whole origin story of evil is that it came into the world through a snake. And, and John knows that. He's trying to be confronting. He's basically saying, you, you, you're the worst that there is, but you think you're so great. He says to them, don't presume to say that having Abraham is, as your father is enough. These Jewish leaders, their confidence was simply the fact that they were Jewish. Their religion and their race was their identity. They were descendants of the great Abraham. And that's the defense that they put up. But I think we too can often be people who just kind of put up a defense to say, this is why we're okay. It's probably not, I'm okay because Abraham is my father, but maybe it's more likely I'm okay because I serve heaps at church or because I'm a good parent. Or I think often it's, it's, we compare down. We say, I, look, I'm okay because I'm not a rapist or a thief or sleeping around or cheating on my spouse or... Whatever it is, we say we're okay because we're not something else. And I think that's what these guys are doing. But John says, no, repentance is something that needs to happen for everyone. You need to actually have fruit that is in step with this idea of repentance. Because God is coming, and anyone who is unrepentant before him is going to get cut down. It's a challenging thing. So he introduces this idea of judgment, judgment for the unrepentant. And that's in kind of scary terms. If you read on in verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. 
he's kind of saying he's going to come in judgment. There's going to be two, there's going to be two groups. There's going to be the wheat that's, that's gathered up in the barn, these people who are confessing and being baptized, and he's saying to these Pharisees and the Sadducees that if they are not repentant, that they are going to be judged. It's strong language. And I want you to hold that image in your mind of what John has just said that Jesus was going to be like when he comes, when you actually see what happens in these next verses when, John, when Jesus rocks up. Because there's actually an amazing contrast going on here. John has said that Jesus is going to come with judgment, and then this happens in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John has just introduced Jesus as this one who's coming to judge. And based on his description, you'd expect to see maybe Jesus rocking up angrily, maybe on a horse with a sword, this coming Messiah King, ready to put everyone in their place. But what you actually see in reality is Jesus arriving, like everyone else, humbly to be baptized. And John is taken aback, given that what he, of what he knows about the Messiah. And he says, look, you don't need to be baptized. Because we've just seen that baptism is tied to confession and repentance and the need to start new. But Jesus doesn't need to do that. But Jesus insists upon it in verse 15. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. This, is, this line here is actually one of the great mysteries in the book of Matthew. The people have wondered, why does Jesus say that it's to fulfill all righteousness that he be baptized? Because there's no requirement that people be, be baptized, particularly not Jewish people. Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's not in need of repentance himself. But he says that this is what he needs to do. And I reckon the answer to that is found in what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Matthew when we saw why it was that Jesus was coming to the world. That God said and the angel said that Jesus was coming to save people from their sins. The purpose for Jesus coming into the world was to save sinful people. And the way that he does that is by taking their place, by being with them. He doesn't just come with judgment, but with salvation. And what we're going to see through all of the book of Matthew, which we're seeing here for the first time, is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't associate with the religious elite, but he identifies with sinners with the broken and the remorseful. He doesn't stand off to the side, look down and judge. But the reason that Jesus gets in the water with the sinners is because that's why he's come. He came to identify with sinners and to go in their place. Leon Morris says about this, Jesus might well have been up there, up there in front, standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of salvation that he would in due course accomplish. Jesus' life, as we will see again and again and again, marked by associating with the lowly, with the broken, with the humble. He doesn't hold sinners off at arm's length, but he embraces them. He's not like a doctor who just doles out advice from behind a screen, but he's a doctor that gets in the muck with those who are deeply in need, even if it means getting sick himself. I think this helps us process. For, for many of us, we find this idea of judgment confronting one of the real challenges of Christianity. But the reality is because sin is real, the need to repent is real. And because sin is real, a lack of repentance is fit for judgment. But we always need to hold in this tension 
that the judge, the one who is doing the judging, it's not Christians, it's not the church, the one who does the judging is Jesus, and he has chosen to put himself in the place of judgment. For those who don't repent, Jesus comes as a judge. But for those who do, he comes as a messenger of peace. And I want to make sure you've heard that message of peace this morning. As we confront and open ourselves up to the realities that maybe we haven't done some things right, that maybe our lives are a bit of a mess, that maybe we've ignored God, we need to remember the reality that in Jesus there's mercy and forgiveness. In Jesus getting in the water and being baptized with just the everyday sinful broken people, we're reminded that he came because he loves us. He is merciful. I read a book over summer by Dane Ortland, who just wrote a whole book about Jesus' heart for the lowly and the broken. And this is just a, one, of the, one of the quotes that I just found really, really just helpful in thinking through this. He says that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that on the day when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. That's how you can be confident to meet with God, to stand before him, which we one day all will, and not have that be a terrifying experience, but one that will fill us with more relief than we could ever imagine. Because he is merciful. Because he loves us more than we could picture, more than we could conceive of or comprehend. And this is the heart of God. We see as this, as this chapter ends, God just kind of putting his stamp of approval, saying, yes, this is my son and this is my heart. Verse 16 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see God's confirmation over this, that saying, yes, this is my son, and he has, in fact, come to save. He has, in fact, come to be with sinners and the broken and the lowly. So as you hear this, and as you reflect on this Jesus and this, and this call to repentance, I wonder what stands out to you and strikes you. I just want to share with you, as I've kind of sat in this over the week, just three things I want to keep going away and thinking on over this week. And maybe you do as well. Firstly, do I spend enough time in the desert? Yeah, that's a question you want to ask yourself. And I don't literally mean going out into like the middle of Australia and sitting in the sand. But there's something significant about loosing from yourself the comforts, the distractions, the things that make you feel secure, the things that silence that voice inside you that asks little questions like, am I okay? Um, am I experiencing the presence of God? Uh, how does God feel about me? Th- these are questions that matter, and we've just got so many things that stop us asking them. I think we need to build into our life opportunities to be in the stillness, 
in the silence, to be alone, away from where all the noise and the hustle and bustle is, to just be with God. Whether that's taking out a day of your week, like on a, on a Sabbath, taking a full Saturday to sit somewhere where you're not going to be distracted and be with God, whether that's doing something smaller every day, just taking 15 minutes of an afternoon before you get home just to slow yourself down and still your heart and ask questions that matter. Because as we go about our lives, there's no shortage of good things in Sydney to fill our time with, but there is an impoverishment when it comes to the questions that matter. We need to be a people who are formed not just by the worldview of this culture, who are not formed by the, the things on the internet or on TV, but who are formed by God himself and by meeting with him. That's question one. Am I spending enough time in the desert? Secondly, am I living in repentance? That might be a way of saying, am I, am I in the practice of confessing my own sin, of owning my own brokenness, or am I in the practice of hiding behind and a line of, I'm okay because. Um, I, I, I've been reflecting on myself that I don't have a lot of confession built into my life. Sometimes that's in my prayer life, but, but more often than not, it's not. And, and in terms of talking with other people, that's not something which I do super regularly. But I think there's something about the practice of confession by actually verbalizing out loud, both with God, but also with other people that you know and love and trust, to say, look, I've stuffed up, I'm not good and I'm not right, that actually is good practice at, at training ourselves not to be people who are confident in, in some false security of why God would be okay with us. We're actually growing in people who are humble. Um, what this world needs is humble Christians, not ones that look down the nose at others and other groups and saying that we're better than them, but, but, but people who can own that we ourselves are in need of mercy. So that's the second question, am I living in repentance? And thirdly, am I rejoicing that Jesus came to me in my sin? There is a gladness that should come with recognizing Jesus' heart for us. That he came to this world, to, and it wasn't that he got here and was met with this inconvenience of us and this problem to be, to be sorted out, but rather it's the reason he came. He came out of a love for us. Knowing everything there is to know about us, Every reason that we're unlovely and unlovable, he still chose to love us and to, came to be with us and to meet with us. And we have the opportunity to know him and meet with him daily. That is cause to rejoice, to be thankful, to reflect on the, the fact that that is amazing. The grace that he has shown us is amazing. We, we want to be reinforcing that in our mind because if you, we are people who are marked by knowing the amazing grace of God. We are people who are joyful and who are, who are glad I know that that's not me every day. Uh, I'm sure it's not any of us every day, um, unless we're super, super fortunate. Um, but in understanding what Jesus came to do, in understanding this call to repentance, we encounter not just a call to repentance, but an invitation to life. And a life of, of gladly knowing that God loves us, that one day we will meet him and we will be okay. So I wonder, do you know this life? If you do, I encourage you to rejoice in it, not just when you're here, but through the week, but certainly in a minute when Esther comes up and leads us through another few songs, to rejoice. Rejoice in the goodness of this amazing grace. And if you don't know this life, or you haven't experienced it, or you've still got questions about it, um, don't feel bad about that at all. We just love that you're here joining in this and, and, and coming and checking things out. We'd love to talk to you. Feel free to reach out. Come talk to me after the service. You can write on one of those white cards on, on your chairs. Um, and we'd love to help you along in that journey.
But yeah, as Esther comes up and we get ready to sing, I'm just going to pray now um, and just to thank God for his word. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you came into this world, that you, uh, you're a God who deals with things as they are, with the reality of our brokenness and sin and evil in this world, that you're a God who, who doesn't want to leave things unresolved, unsolved and unhealed, but you came with a message of repentance that people, might, people like us might end up back on the right path. But we also want to thank you for your mercy and your goodness and your grace that we see in the person of Jesus in the way that he saves us even though we are wretched and evil and broken. And we just pray, Lord, that we would be people who are marked by an understanding of your amazing grace. We would show that grace to others, that we would be seen as people who are humble, not as people who are proud. And this might, we might be able just to share the good news um, of great joy that we have knowing who Jesus is and what he's done. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we do, just sing in light of this. Um, just take a minute. Maybe you just want to sit and reflect. Maybe you just want to continue praying in your own mind for a moment. Um, but also there's a chance now if you'd like to fill in the white cards on your seat. They'll be collected at the very end. If you have any questions, you can let us know. If you want to find out more about church here, um, if you want prayer for anything, um, Anna and Jez and myself pray you guys every Tuesday um, and, and things that you put on there will help inform those prayers. Um, so take a minute to fill those in and then we're going to sing a few more songs together.